and welcome to Rationality, a brand new podcast where we three gentlemen of different political persuasions meet every single week to discuss the big stories from around the country. We want to exchange views, not insults, and try to make sense of it all while still having a little fun. So, welcome along, fellas. Uh, been a very, very, very interesting week in the news. Uh, what have you guys been up to? Guy, what have you been doing? Um, again, nothing too exciting. It's, just, it's still really just cracking on with my coursework for a, in, in preparation for exams. But then I've also been reading a really fun book alongside just to keep my spirits up. It's called A Thousand Years of Annoying the French, and it's hilarious. <laughs> Who's it by, just so people can look uh, for it? It's, it's by Stephen Clark. He's just done a, a, a updated version, actually, to take account of events going up to about 2015. Okay, and then, and I like to forget history, especially European history following that, so... Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it came out a few years before all the Brexit stuff had really come to fruition, so I suppose there wasn't enough to put in for a further section on that. I'm sure that will come out when he does yeah. edition three. Oh, no, no. I look sounds, forward to Sounds it. fun, though, sounds fun. Um, Deepak, what have you been up to this week? Um, just the last week of my Easter break, so back to work on Monday, so just tying up a few loose ends before I head back, um, and I finished... Um, another book, which is The Assault on Truth, uh, the book by Peter Alborn. So The Assault on Truth, the moral, uh, new moral barbarism of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. It was pretty good. That sounds fun. Uh, that sounds fun. I mean, it's just coming at it from slightly different angles, but um, lovely stuff. OK, well, we've um, we got a couple of topics this week. So without further ado, let's jump into the show. So in the news this week, uh, David Cameron, former Prime Minister of, of, of Great Britain, has been uh, under fire for with with his involvement with Greensill Capital. Um, but D- Deepak, what's what's been going on? So uh, Cameron uh, basically lobbied a number of senior ministers on behalf of Greensill, um, encouraging the government to sort of grant the firm uh, like a big role in the coronavirus linked um, business loans, publicly guaranteed coronavirus loans. Um, he also held some share options with them before it collapsed. Uh, he also lobbied Matt Hancock in 2019 on behalf of Greensill uh, to introduce an NHS wage payment scheme. Um, and also there was some, he lobbied uh, Rishi Sunak as well with some sort of desperate text messages, which um, Sunak it looked like he's trying to fob him off like sort of 20 days between his responses to him and stuff but he said some questionable things in those replies as well which probably need looking into in terms of trying to find ways to make it work for him um and Cameron says he abided by the uh, rules and he's done nothing wrong and now there's going to be an inquiry into it headed by headed by Nigel Boardman Nigel Boardman I think it's Nigel Boardman who um actually lobbied against tightening the <laughs> Lobbying, lobbying rules himself rules. a few years yeah. ago yeah so that's that's uh that's the summary of what's been going on okay so we'll definitely take a closer look at the um sunak exchanges because a couple of interesting uh text messages there not with a great deal but there is there is sort of one line there which um sort of leaves leaves some space for some questions but guy we kind of spoke about this earlier this week you know and we were thinking about what we were going to talk about today and um you know the, the general agreement between the three of us was well Nothing illegal has happened, has it? Yeah, as, as far as the lobbying rules are concerned and the ministerial code is concerned, it definitely doesn't seem like any 
rule breach has, has happened. And, and in fact, really, now that I've done a bit more research into it, as far as the government of the day is concerned, um, it, a lot of this is really just a storm in a teacup. So, for example, if we look at uh, the Greensill scenario, uh, yes, there's a broader conversation to be had about, about lobbying generally, but as far as the government is concerned, the lobbying was unsuccessful. Yes, uh, a couple NHS branches did take on uh, the subsidiary earns payment package. But as far as the, the major uh, coronavirus uh, business uh, loan scheme, which was reported on uh, in a few instances incorrectly, um, was, was actually unsuccessful, according to the Financial Times investigation on that. So you make it sound, guys, as though not much to see here with uh, Cameron and, and Lex Greensill. So in, in your opinion, Guy, why is it such a big story? Well, so my, my initial point is really just to do with the, the government of the day mm-hmm. uh, in that I don't think there's so much to see for them. Um, I, I also, while I think there's definitely more of a conversation to be had, I also don't think it's so much of a, a big issue with what David Cameron personally did. Uh, and not just because, you know, the, the rules were strictly complied with two years later from after having left office, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I think uh, access to government and not personal knowledge of, of individuals in government is a commodity. Uh, it's a valuable commodity, which is not only possessed by former ministers, but also uh, senior trade figures uh, and also even personal friends uh, that is traded on as an accepted part in the marketplace. And it makes sense that a prime minister now in his personal capacity should make use of those contacts. So lots of um, lots of the narrative around this, we, we sort of mentioned it at the top, but um, Tory sleaze. So the idea of um, the Conservative Party being the party of um, historically fair and open competition for all companies uh, and, and sort of equal opportunities. You know, I mean, it's a short jumper to the, the Robert, Gen- Robert Jenrick um, controversy that happened sort of at the height of the pandemic with um, him uh, sort of bending the rules for a, a Conservative Party donor in order for that Conservative Party donor, who was a developer, um, being able to uh, effectively bypass about 40 million quids worth of uh, worth of council tax for developing. Um, also, obviously, the, there's the ongoing question of PPE contracts, which is a separate issue, but at the same time, it you know, it, there does appear to be familial connection in terms of um, Matt Hancock and 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 other members of the of the, of the cabinet even um, sort of getting uh, perhaps prefer the companies of which getting perhaps preferential treatment. Um, understandably, in a in a situation where PPE is very hard to get hold of and we need it quickly, so you know there there is a defence there to suggest that well they were going to if you had someone you could just pick the phone up to and they could fulfill an order very quickly then you know perhaps that is by the by but um it it seemed to me from watching prime minister's questions this week that whenever um Keir Starmer has you know gone in uh, on on the attack with uh, with the prime minister uh, the Prime Minister sort of not necessarily, uh, you know, he, he's managed to sort of shake off the allegations or, or um, sh- shake off the blame. Whereas whereas this week, I don't know if you caught it, but he, he seemed for the first time in a long, long time to be flustered in the House. Why? And, and I, I guess what I'm trying to get at from either of you guys, really, is, is why do you think the question of um, Conservative Party sort of 
lobbying ethics, uh, even though it's not necessarily him. And, and from what we've seen of Sunak's text messages so far, there's, there's not a lot in there to sort of incriminate. Um, why, why does this seem to be sticking then? Well, ironically, I, I, I wouldn't actually say that in Boris Johnson's case, uh, his fluster or potential em- embarrassment is, doesn't necessarily pertain to what the truth of the matter is. Uh, and, and that is, I would say that negatively against the government in that he's been perfectly cool-headed when, as we've seen, giving uh, either, well, we won't say lies in the House, but seemingly mistruths. Um, <laughs> another conversation for another day, I think. That well, in, yeah. I- indeed. Uh, so I wouldn't say it pertains to the truth. I would think it's more likely is that it's a highly emotive issue and very optically uh, bad, at least at face value, for the Conservative Party because of the throwback now to the 90s when we did have that huge scandal of Tory Slee. So it, it, they all shine light on each other and all the tabloids naturally will hark back to that. And so it's, it's naturally an embarrassing issue for the Prime Minister. So he's one of those who will want to stand that out as quickly as possible, hence this flurry of investigations and inquiries. But, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of have Deepak come in in a moment, but um, Labour put forward a motion for an independent inquiry, um, or sorry, a parliamentary inquiry, um, and, and Johnson's defence was, um, we don't want MPs marking their own homework. Uh, you know, which which did seem it struck my ears a little strangely, seeing as it effectively with a um, a, conser- a government appointed uh, independent inquiry that is effectively the Conservatives marking their own homework, which is less <laughs> balanced. Um, well, it's, if it's an independent inquiry is very different from a parliamentary inquiry, and in fact there are a lot of in, independent news journals, including um, let me think now, the last one I heard it from was TDLR, um, which which have stated the problems with the MPs run inquiry or parliamentary inquiry is that not only the Conservative Party, but all MPs and all parties uh, have, due to their job insecurity, have a natural interest in lobbying groups as a potential gateway once they leave Parliament. And many go into that across all parties. Therefore, if they were to then do an inquiry into lobbying, they're hardly likely to do a particularly intensive one when it threatens their own cushy landing post-Parliament. So there is an inherent flaw in a government-appointed independent inquiry because they can choose who, who they want to, um, to, to, to run the inquiry. As you've said, there's an inherent flaw in, in, in parliamentary inquiries. Um, what's the answer? Well, I think it depends on the situation. So often parliamentary inquiries are pretty good. Um, just not when Parliament's investigating Parliament or, or MPs. Um, government independent inquiries, I think, often can do a, a better job because they can be more intensive, can use people who are actually specialists in whatever the particular area is. But as we have discussed, the, the problem is where, for example, the government has a large majority uh, in Parliament at the time, uh, it's difficult or can be difficult to hold uh, the members accountable in the sense of bringing the government to account for who they choose on the inquiry. But at least what it can happen is that even if the uh, opposition can't necessarily have a, a meaningful vote on the matter, uh, they can bring that to public light. And then that would be rather embarrassing for the government if they had a load of cronies on an inquiry. And so you don't often see that happening. So um, I'm interested in, in in terms of the outcome of of the, the sort of 
inquiry that's being set up by the government. Well, what's the legal obligation of the government in terms of response to the inquiry? I, I don't actually know. Uh, so, I, don't, I don't think that the government necessarily would have a legal obligation to respond to the so, inquiry. So, I mean, if, if, it, if it found uh, inherent flaws, for instance, which, I mean, I'm not expecting it will do, um, but if it, if, it, if it were to find inherent flaws in, in the way that lobbying laws... Lobbying work, works. Um, there's this, unless it was built into primary legislation, which I don't believe it currently is, for this particular type of inquiry, mm -hmm. then there's no legal responsibility to respond to it. However, the political pressure which an inquiry generates, which is essentially their primary goal often... Um, should be enough to then move the government to do so. And and conversely, with a parliamentary inquiry, is there a, a legal obligation to act on that? that that's an interesting question. It's possible, but again, I don't think so. No. Okay. No. Well, I just um I'm really confused uh, that by the it, it seems as though with uh, an 80 odd seat majority in the house of commons you know with that majority that they have um plus the adamant sort of refrain that that there has been no wrongdoing and that, that they or or effectively that, that there's there's no great problem here but we'll have an inquiry to sort of placate the masses um mm. Why they wouldn't have a parliamentary inquiry as well? I don't. Well, I don't perhaps for once, perhaps the government. Well, I, I think they're often more often, but shall we say from your own language, for once the government is actually really be trying to be quite honest here, um, and knows that a parliamentary inquiry is is the wrong format to use when uh, MPs are primarily concerned, particularly when parliamentary inquiry would naturally favour the largest party in the House, which is the governing party. No, but it, I mean, it, it strikes me that with the inquiry we have at the moment, no one's going to be satisfied. With, or at least um, if if you think, if you are grossly offended by what's gone on in in this Greensill example, um, you will look at this inquiry, similarly to the race report we discussed before, you'll look at this require, uh, inquiry and you will think, well, it was set up by uh, an individual who fundamentally believes that lobbying laws should be relaxed. So there is inherent bias from day one. So there will be that sort of... Well, I mean, often people will say that of any inquiry, if the inquiry reaches the opinion that the person setting it up may have expressed at no, some point the, in the past. The difference being, and it's interesting in comparison with the race report, because the race yeah. report, the findings of the race report were contrary to um, the findings of different styles of reports and inquiries before. I don't want to... Yeah. So... Um, it, we don't need to turn it, old ground, it, but I know, I know what you mean. It would, you know, if, if you're if you're disproving what is um, the accepted wisdom, then you know the onus is on you to you know almost give more detail and explain, you know, tangibly why. And I think the um, so the the pro the pro lobby lobby, um, you know, as a, as a result of of, of this inquiry, if if it doesn't find um, in in favour of well, actually, we could we could relax a hell of a lot more I, mean, I don't think it will find that because that would be too unpopular um but I, I just think I don't know why they wouldn't have both if they're that confident that nothing's gone wrong they have that sort of it's it's home team advantage in terms of a parliamentary inquiry and if both inquiries were to find the same thing this matter is effectively closed I think people would accept well, that Essentially, it's a waste of resources. You're not going to get much more from by having two than one. And the parliamentary inquiry is not likely to 
certainly not going to likely to be any better or certainly not more intensive uh, than an independent inquiry. Um, and if they conflict with each other, then that just produces confusion. And then you probably have to have a third inquiry just to resolve the issue. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so which is, which is not helpful. And, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Exactly. Which is not yeah. really helpful to getting an issue done quickly when you're trying to focus on more important issues of the day. Okay. Well, it's it's messy. It's messy, that's for sure. And sure. Um, I think it's it's one of those situations where... The, I would say I think it's been made to seem more messy than it actually is by uh, a, a press who've gotten a little too excited by something which is smaller than they've made it out to be. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I think um, the, the idea of um, someone who has privileged access pocketing effectively as a result of a successful lobby using using a public position pocketing i mean the 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 numbers well he's not using a public position to pocket money no, you're talking about cameron he's using a, a pre- former a previously pub- um he's using the privilege of a previously held public position and the th- the fact is it's taxpayers money and had the um had he successfully lobbied uh he would indirectly but as a result, if share prices had gone off, so those I know what you mean. There are rumours that he told some of his friends that had the share prices gone up, he would have got about sixty million. Yeah, um, these are rumours, but let's say roughly speaking, that would be true. But I mean, he, he, he held the options. Increase. I mean, so so even if share play, I mean, at the moment, his shares in Greensill Capital are worth diddly squat um, yeah. because it ceases to exist. But even even had it had the share prices not in fact he has liabilities well exactly so you know i'm i'm not going to even bother getting out my tiny violin for that sad fact but um i i think there is something i mean we we used the word before was before we came on air um there is something very very icky about it. so i wanted to get your view then on okay. why you think it's particularly different for someone in a powerful position such as uh, mark zuckerberg who will have contacts with various government ministers to lobby uh, for things which advantage him versus a former public servant or prime minister? Uh, well, Mark Zuckerberg has never pertained to... Um, he's, he's never set out his stall as someone who is inherently a servant of his country or his people. Mark Zuckerberg represents Facebook Inc. And despite David Cameron no longer being prime minister, he... You know, effectively, I mean, he, he'll become a lord one day, presumably. Um, he'll uh, he'll continue to benefit from the mandate given to him at, at two general elections in terms of um, the contacts he has. And ultimately, uh, using that privileged access to both people and information uh, given to him by voters by members of the public as well as conservative party members um it, i appreciate it's not illegal uh, and cases can be made to mitigate you know the wrongdoing but there is something inherently icky about that something in, inherently sleazy i presume you agree with with hector on that then deepak yeah generally i mean especially with the point that um of who mark zuckerberg mark zuckerberg <laughs> represents um um, Zach Muckerberg. Yeah. <laughs> Zach Muckerberg, yeah, in terms of who he represents and everything. So I think it's slightly different. Um, yeah. But it doesn't have, we don't have to use him, him as an example. It's more just any major ma- ma- corporate magnate. Any sort of um, well known sort of CEO from any sort of 
um, top top country company in the world. But ultimately, uh, you I think there's a sort of I just you could you wouldn't see Margaret Thatcher doing something like that later on in life. You wouldn't see someone like John Major doing something like that later on in life. You wouldn't see Theresa May doing something like that. You wouldn't see Gordon Brown or, I mean, let's leave Tony Blair out for a moment. But <laughs> but um and, but the, so, so I mean, the the point is, it's not prime ministerial behaviour, and I think prime ministerial behaviour. There's sort of an unwritten rule that you exhibit prime prime ministerial behaviour from the moment you. Um, walk into number ten until and until you until you die until you lie down for the last time. I I think so. Is this something you're? Well, that's a very interesting point you raise. And is this something you think is only a, applicable then to uh, prime ministers? Applicable to cabinet ministers? Applicable to all members of government from whatever rank? How where do you draw the line? Well, I think I think ultimately, uh. I sort of just to, to, to sort of pair it back a bit, I think um, I touched on it before that the Conservative Party sets itself out as the party of free and open competition, um, you know, in, in terms of in terms of how business is done. You know, the the, the, the best businesses survive the, the most effective. That's the way the market is set up. The best businesses survive. Yeah. The best products yeah. lead the market. Um, the best marketed products lead the market as well. You know, so, but the way that this conservative government seems to be operating differently to, rather ironically, the May and Cameron governments, is it does seem that there is a, you know, uh, you look at someone like a Bill Wiggin, who's who's my local MP. He's um, he's uh, um, a, a farmer from north herefordshire by by background but he he has a, a sort of non-executive directorship at some a company called Allpay, which is a, a payments systems um manager effectively sort of like card card machines and and online secure payments things like that and um that com that company despite not being particularly big um handles multiple national Sort of government, sort of, um, public sector contracts, and um, you know, I, I find it strange. I mean, it's it's declared on the um, declare, declaration of interest for MPs, so it's, it's not yeah, it's not secret. It's out there, and um, you know, for for a double figure figure number of hours work for all pay a year in a non executive directorship, he he pockets thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds, and and there strikes me that I don't understand. Uh, so, so to answer your question, no, I, I, I think that by all means have careers afterwards, but there's something that's just, just, just icky. Um, it, it, it seems as though it's sort of you look after me, I'll look after you. It's a sort of big boys club. So you don't want uh, MPs or ministers having uh, private jobs either outside of oh, I do. Parliament. I do. I just think that um, where there is conflict of interest, I think that there. Um, rather than it being a tradable commodity, I think that their historical public service should actually count as a, a negative. Well, the thing is, you were talking about free and open competition, but that comes down to free and open competition for businesses using the weapons of their assets. Two of the most important assets used by businesses are, of course, information and contacts. And this is something not just you know, business, this is not just uh, parliamentary contacts, this is business contacts, uh, scientific contacts, a whole range of things. Uh, and those we'd, have... com we'd combine those two and call them data. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're quite yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Data assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, one branch of data assets is, of course, as, as I've mentioned, uh, government contacts. And it's, it's a legitimate part of ordinary business across the world uh, for that stream of, of data asset to be used. And it, it doesn't strike me as, as odd uh, that former members of parliament uh, should sell that asset. I understand what Guy is saying, but I think at the same time it depends on what the on what we're actually talking about. So if we're using the example of PPE and the things that happened during COVID, yeah, there were various examples of companies that have experience of distributing PPE and creating PPE at a large scale that were rejected by the government, and then people who had donated to the Conservative Party or had links to the party at various levels, whether it was um, MPs or like a a conservative peer or whatever they sort of had the vip lane to get their <laughs> contracts um that they wanted so I, I think it depends i think you know maybe with all pay depending on the situation it might just be appropriate I mean, all pay is pretty popular um and I, I know businesses that use it myself um but when it comes to things like PPE and there's lives mm-hmm. on the line and things like that, I think it's a slightly different scenario with the VIP. So I do think there's a much like stronger that. argument to be had for the PPE, uh, definitely. Um, it, it's hard to say. I think, you know, there are there would be some instances where it's a matter of, of speed and urgency and just going to people you immediately know. But where there were tenders, as there were also mm. public tenders and you had major companies being rejected, then, yeah, um, I, I would agree with you that's problematic. And it, and it looks certainly like there may have been some serious errors there mm. um yeah there's a very strong argument for yeah. um because i remember when it all when it all started because it was all over social media there were numerous examples of people literally sharing their exchanges uh, with the government mm. and saying um look we can offer you this you know this is what we do we do this mm. um you know we do this on a daily basis this is our this is where we how we earn our money and mm. then you had other companies like i think it was like lux lifestyle was given a sort of nearly a thirty million pound contract, um, but they didn't have any trading history at all. Um, they didn't have any employees listed anywhere. There was no actual detail about the company itself. We had other ones. There was one that was just set up, I think, a month before that had like a multi million pound contract. Um, that called... reminds me of the ferry service, which doesn't have any ferries, which got them. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's a classic as well. You can't forget yeah. that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, was that Mr. Grayling? I think wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, you got you got the the um, the landlord, the ex landlord of Matt Hancock's local pub or whatever. The the cock in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? What's this? Matt Matt Hancock's former bartender. Yeah. With his thirty million pound <laughs> contract to supply testing equipment. Yeah. yeah. Good grief. Yeah. Which they which they which they negotiated over WhatsApp, by the way. I was just gonna. I was gonna add a couple of things. So I was obviously listening to the conversation, um, mm. and obviously loads of different things to cover. Um, and I think the comment that Hector made about Boris looking a little bit flustered. I think he always looks a little bit flustered, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think he was looking slightly more flustered the other day. I agree with that, and and I think that the reality is he he's saying now that he's willing to set up an inquiry into looking into like behaviour into public life, transparency, accountability, conflicts of interest. And knowing his history, he's given the thumbs up to look into that. And now he's saying he will do that for David Cameron, which brings me on to another thing, which is the ability to use this as a distraction. I mean, a, lot, a, a guy made a good point. I mean, 
how much of a big deal is this? The newspapers have jumped on it, and I think they've jumped on it for various reasons. I think the left-leaning newspapers have jumped on it because it's David Cameron, and the right-leaning newspapers have jumped on it because it means they don't have to jump on other things. <laughs> um, and I think, and I think the, in terms of looking at it on the perspective of, um, sort of right-leaning newspapers and what Boris is doing, I just think that at the moment David Cameron is is a scapegoat, and even better than being a scapegoat, he's a convenient one, at the moment because it means <laughs> we don't have to look at other things. We don't have to look into detail at the what three billion pounds spent on coronavirus contracts to conservative-linked businesses. We don't have to look at sort of um any notions of political corruption. We don't have to look into the uh, whole issue surrounding Jennifer Akuri. Like, all these things, or the high-priority PPE lane, the more we look mm. into what's happening with Greensill and Cameron, it means we don't have to look at those things. So I think it suits um, Boris in certain ways, it suits this government in certain ways, and there are various reasons why different newspapers might be looking at it. And, uh, and that's just my reasoning for why I think they mm. are. So that's why I think, right the sort of right-leaning newspapers are looking at and the left-leaning ones are jumping on mm. it because they've got different reasons to. Um, so there's nothing... I mean, currently, there's been no discussion of an inquiry into what's happening with Aguri. Um, well, yeah, she's there yesterday's news now, isn't she? Yeah, it's exactly. It's all gone. I mean, and that's what I mean. So it's just the latest thing to jump on and they're jumping on it for various different reasons. I mean, we've got... We've had a public health crisis. 150,000 people have died on, you know, on the current government's watch. Um... um and, you know, there's no discussion of an inquiry looking into that at the moment either. Um, and I just think this is this has come around at a good time for Boris. Um, hmm. And I think, that, yeah, I think that relates a little bit to what Guy was saying anyway, in terms of the probably looking at it more than they probably would. But I think the main reason they're looking into it is because it involves public money. And Guy, and Guy does raise another good point as well. If, you, if you're a former politician, you always are going to have two massive assets that are really marketable you know how the government works and you know who works in government and that's been said for a long time and that's always going to give people an advantage uh but the fact it involves public money and everything and he was set to because of his shares um was set to earn a lot of money from this if it, if it did go ahead um it was always going to be newsworthy wasn't it and, and on the topic of mm. lobbying i mean if you didn't if you weren't the former prime minister, would you be able to text the chancellor and get a reply? Probably not. Um, and I know there were 20 days in between and Sunak looked like he was trying to basically, fob, <laughs> like he was trying to fob him off. I mean, I've done that plenty of times and I'm sure you guys have as well. When he trying to get rid of someone. <laughs> take the hint. <laughs> yeah, take the hint. So 20 days between the replies. Um, but I think that the one text message that did bother me a little bit, which is worth looking into was I'm just, I think I wrote it here. It was something saying, um, he told Cameron that he had, in fact, and in inverted commas, pushed the team to explore an alternative mm. with the bank. Um, mm. So, you know, the angle before was that Sunak ignored him, and he did ignore him for like 20 days. But what he did text after that was that he was looking at other options, which doesn't um, doesn't paint Sunak in a particularly good uh, good light. Um, so, yeah, that that's worth worth looking at as well. The other the other final thing I have with it issue. Is in turn. I don't know if you guys saw the comments by the, not the head of the FDA. I think he's the general secretary of the FDA, uh, Dave Penman. Now the FDA, I can't remember what it actually stands for, which is terrible. But it's basically the trade union for civil servants, um, and he his immediate criticism of this, and I think he has a fair point as well, is that for this investigation that's coming up, there's there's actually no specific remit 
to mm. examine what the four ministers did. So when we're talking about Sunak and Hancock, etc., etc., this it doesn't have any remit to look into their behaviour or whether they're, you know, in terms of lobbying of ministers, was their response appropriate and how was their behaviour generally? There's no remit to look into that. Um, it's just looking into the um, sort of financial supply chains and everything and how that works with government. Um, so like wider questions of what the public are probably concerned about, which is whether or not you can you can buy influence or can an ex prime minister use the contacts to get privilege access or make loads of money from. Um, and it's not just the question for Cameron. I think it's just a general question about how lobbying works and regulations around lobbyists, which we probably won't find out from this investigation. So I think a few people might be concerned about that. And if you want to build public trust, that's probably something else they need to look into. Well, you raised some really interesting points. Uh, just just to touch down a bit further on what you were saying, um, I know you've, you, you, you found it a bit odd how uh, Sunak said, look, look, let's see what we can <laughs> do, what, look what other options we can find in response to... I, I accept that could mean anything, though, couldn't it? Sure, yeah. sure. But uh, let's just say that he was actually, you know, actively trying to to push for something. I, I don't necessarily think he was, but let let's say let's say he was. Um, why exactly do you find that problematic that uh, a minister responded positively or, or actively to lobbying? I think it's more because of his comments before that he was suggesting it was ignored and he didn't have anything to do with it. Right. Like the text okay. message okay. says he was trying to find options for him. I think that's my biggest concern. So it's it's the lack of. Again, lack of truth yeah, from the government, rather the than a, a problem with mm. lobbying itself. Mm. Okay, I, I think see. also. Yeah. I think also that the fact that Sunak even said we're having we're we're exploring this. I'm getting the team to look into this. That is more. Um, that is more weight behind than you would ever get in 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 terms of do it going via the accepted channels. You know, applying for. Um, any any kind of uh, COVID relief via the sort of government's website or something. The fact that even if it's not true, even if he's only trying to sort of placate him and say, yeah, I'm looking at it, you know, hold your horses. Mm. Um, that That is effectively, Cameron can then take that back to Greensill and and it, it gives Cameron an unfair advantage at work. <laughs> even if we're not looking at public money, um, it, it it's just well if you so i mean if if so essentially is your is your problem with it the advantage it gives to cameron personally the, his post post uh, prime ministerial life without public money that company goes bust with that with the public money the argument says that, that a, a proportion of that money goes into um cameron's pocket albeit not directly i'm not saying that the government loan was going to go straight to cameron but, yeah yeah um you know and and i think that's, that's sort of gross but you know lobby by all means uh introduce people um but i, I think there's there's something a bit sort of unpleasant about the fact that he owns shares uh and and it was a technicality of him also because what he did would have been illegal were he working for david cameron plc <laughs> um or david cameron li limited the fact that he was mm. on as a staffer that's the only reason why this isn't illegal activity but in terms of I don't think he was turning up there daily, you know, sitting at his desk and doing his nine to five. So you can't... Punch uh, card. No, so you, you can't really make the suggestion that he was a proper staffer. It was a, a loophole, which um, was... And that was the only fa feature of that whole arrangement which made it legal.
because you remove that feature if he's representing himself it is illegal right yeah well just returning something you said a bit bit earlier which i i do find naturally quite persuasive and i'm sure you might want to circle back to what you've just been saying um but it's when you mentioned the dignity of the office uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and ickiness, and you, again, with large profiteering. So there's a lot of money that's potentially concerned here, um, as you raised. Um, and well, I suppose being as traditionalist and conservative as, as I am, I, I am fundamentally inclined towards the importance of the dignity of, mm. of an office and that that should uh, be carried through. Uh, so I wondered if you wanted to dig a bit more into your, your thoughts on, on what you think that means, uh, both the dignity of the office and the, what behaviour that, that pertains to prime minister's post office. Because in the past, of course, they'd either get a very hefty peerage, which would come with um, either a pension or, or at least uh, a lot of privileges, which would naturally then result in income um, or some other equivalent, whereas that's not the case now. Uh, so what do you think, what do you expect of uh, the dignity of the office and how well, that it's relates really to difficult Because I think that the way that um, it's set up at the moment, and, and I mean government and, and the, I mean all of the Houses of Parliament, is it's really difficult because ultimately I think I would be very, very much in favour of MPs and ministers and the Prime Minister being paid a great deal more. Mm-hmm. Um, but as on the, on the flip side... Uh, I th- I think that there there should be rules in place about owning shares in companies pretty much full stop, um, <laughs> because I think that at the moment I think it, it fundamentally there are there are there are ministers MPs across the house for whom their MP salary is not their main source of income. No, not at all. Um, it's not very big so, income, so they definitely need to supplement it. So for me, there's a fundamental conflict of interest with you being in, in a position where you are influential and you are able to make changes. Why would you, um, you know, in, in this capitalist environment, why would you prioritise something that were effectively could compromise your 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 much bigger income source so um for me that means that effectively with with the way things are at the moment uh, it lends itself to elitism and it lends itself to interests outside of um the national interest in terms of the most number of people benefited um it, it lends itself to sort of unscrupulous immoral whatever the words are but um effectively bad faith behavior i.e not in good faith not in are you suggesting there has been bad bad faith behavior then in these two instances i'm just saying that um i i think i think yes there is some bad faith behavior from in in the the cameron greensill thing um principally simply simply being having the the office he's he's held and mm-hmm. um you and you know we've we've sort of been over why i find it uncomfortable i think um i don't think that cameron was going there thinking of the steelworks in rotherham that he was trying that it was involved with um uh green seal in terms of some fine he wasn't going in there to save them yeah yeah um and and so so by so it's not good faith that he's gone in he's he's gone there he's wouldn't you say it's good faith to go in to benefit yourself in a business contract? I would have thought that's that's fairly standard bit good faith. No, but um, 
I, think... I mean, it's not altruistic. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think you have to be. No, but I, I think it's going back to the sort of Zuckerberg, Elon Musk point yeah. And, yeah. and the dignity of the office. Yeah. Um, I, I just, as I said, apart from one or two others, and I mean one or two others, of all the prime ministers I've ever read about or, or what I understand of them, um, you know, this is not prime ministerial behaviour. And I think at the moment we've got a prime minister who, um, when he does eventually manage to um, manage to um, career his way into overturning this four point le- 14 point lead he currently has mm. uh, in the polls, um, mm. You know, I, I I think that he will be uh, absolutely uh, on the gravy train. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and and uh, I think ultimately we don't pay them enough mm. um, in order for them to relinquish them and their immediate families' um, interests. I'm not saying get rid of it all, and I'm not yeah, saying yeah. don't do other work. I just think there should be a cap in terms of. And uh, I, I, I don't have the answer, but there should be some form of cap which prevents that type of right. of interest. Well, I suppose I'd say two things in in response. And I really do find the, at least in relation to the prime minister, the the concept of dignity of the office quite persuasive. I think it's a good argument. Um, I think there are just perhaps two problems. One of which relating to the dignity part is is that you mentioned all, all the prime ministers past, with the exception of a few. The trouble is, as I as I mentioned a bit earlier, is that that concept of the dignity of the office and how people behave post office comes from a time when they didn't need to worry about grubbing themselves with with commerce because they were all ennobled and already had vast land estates in the main. Um, you know, if you t- if you talk about anyone who's sort of pre forties, mostly, um, and then secondly, when it when it when it comes to banning or heavily restricting the amount of interest you can have in, in, in companies, certainly if it's post post uh, your time in office, you, you're you then in danger of encouraging those same ministers who will have the same interest, in personal interest in keeping wealth or, or benefits for their family, rather than having it publicly uh, recorded or, or at least in fairly accessible uh, register, registers for things like trading shares and so on what you're then encouraging people to do is make use of what we call uh, black hole trusts which is essentially where you have an offshore trust uh, where the um, settler and beneficiary are not don't are designed in a way not to give evidence of who the true beneficiary is so for example you have a settler who's a someone not connected to your family who will then put in their relevant money and then the beneficiary will usually be a charity of some kind which um, is the, these are also called Red Cross Trusts because the, the common one used in the past was, was the Red Cross. However, there would be an option to add beneficiaries at a given time. Uh, and so the true beneficiary, who, for example, let's say, uh, would be a, a former prime minister, could then be added in and they get the money. Uh, so you then have all these uh, indirect interests in companies out of the public view um, and then could potentially be gained whenever, whenever desired, which is more dangerous than the current position. Again, I, I think um, at the moment, I think the sort of standard MP salary is what for seventy seventy thousand. About seventy thousand, yeah, 70, that's right. Something like that. Yeah. So um, raise it to two hundred thousand. What? Yeah, for, for MPs? Raise, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay, that's yeah. a lot, Hector. That's fine, but I'm the conservative. I, 
conservative and I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet the, the point is that um, that's the kind of salary you see in the city of London. Yes, and that is an argument made. Yeah, um, and what, what you do then is, um, you know, you've mentioned about sort of tax holes and, and offshore accounts and things like that. These are all problems we need to solve. Mm. The, 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 there's another conversation to be had there, but um, as as part of the office, I think all of your accounts should be open to public record, mm. yeah. um, or at least um, available by Freedom mm. of Information. So, if, so for are. instance, um, you know, if if all of a sudden you start receiving this 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 massive income, no, I think I think we should be we should be setting our parliament up so that the most so it's an attractive career for the most able, not at the moment what it is, which um, is you've, you've got either the perception of um, self-serving elitists or you've got genuine hardworking people. But absolutely, um, I think that uh, representing your constituents should be the pinnacle of your career. It shouldn't be something that sets you off after you finish serving in the house to then go and use those in grubby little backstreet deals. Um, I think that ultimately the the best people in our country in terms of ability, arguably because of um, because of wages and and the money available, aren't necessarily attractive attracted to public life. I mean, I think Keir Starmer before he became leader of the opposition, yeah. for example, I think he took a massive pay cut oh, as big, yeah, as, big as a, a, a sort of leading criminal. So he's and you're relying on people to make effectively bad financial decisions personally to, to come to the house. Well, it's, it's again, it's a strong argument. It's why, for, uh, from my own field, uh, there's a significant dearth of highly skilled judges at the moment uh, because a lot of the leading QCs don't want to lose their huge uh, income and, and take a, a big pay cut and become a judge where you go from, say, £700,000 or even a million pounds in some cases to £100,000. Yeah, so... So you both balked in the, in shock at my suggestion that we should be looking at a six figure salary for for you know your your, your local MP. Um, I mean, I, I don't see how unless you make the job as appealing uh, in every sense. Um, and this is something that, on the face of it, even I was opposed to the MP pay rise last year, for instance, or this year because because it, next to the nurses. Um, mm. the nurses pay thing it looked bad but generally speaking um, it, it, for me it, it should be absolutely central and I think that that way you you do have people who are genuinely um, you know it's, it's a genuinely attractive job to have as your sort of sole income but it's also um, it would lend itself to people not necessarily needing to seek out other interests. They could focus on their work and they would be expected to on that salary. I mean, I don't think I have an issue with the six figures, just the 200,000. I mean, <laughs> I mean, six figures is probably okay, but um, it's just the 200,000. And I think if we were to do something like that, and if it was to go um, that high, I, I do think we need, I think we'll need a lot of different things to change. I think we'll need a, strong, a stronger speaker in the house. Uh, and I think we'll need more scrutiny of MPs more than they have now with the sort of stuff mm. they can get away with what they say uh, without understanding the consequences of their words and things. So I, I would support it, but I think we'd make need to make the job a little bit more challenging than it currently is. Because I think there's a yeah. massive mismatch between what constituents want and what they're actually getting as well. 
Mm. Um, so there'll need to be more checks on how well they're doing those things as far as I'm concerned, if it was to go to that. Hmm. And also, if you want the, the incentive not to be grubby, to, to use Hector's words, um, <laughs> to carry on, not only does it have to be a good pay check while you're an MP, mm. but you're going to need a massive pension. Mm. And that's, you're, asking a, you're, a lot of, you're asking a lot of state finance to not only yeah. give a big check when you're an MP, but a big pension. And it's going to have to be a very big pension mm. to compete with what you could earn on the private sector. Yeah, well, as I say, I, um, before I sort of set out my sweeping parliamentary reform, <laughs> I, think I, I, I appreciate it. I don't have all the answers. I wish sure. I did. I wish I did. But <laughs> I think that um, the, the, I stand by the principle, but I understand that um, some of the numbers may need ironing out. But um, I think... I think isn't that what anyone... Boris Johnson says at the end of most sessions in the house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer. Well, no, it, difference, difference is mine's principle, his is rhetoric. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so we thought we would discuss the roadmap out of lockdown. So we're, we're, we're talking now on Saturday, the 17th of April. So the hairdressers, the close contact services, the, the non-essential retail has opened up indoors. Um, we've got pubs open outdoors, restaurants open outdoors. So we thought after a few days of uh, relative freedom compared to what we've experienced over the last couple of months, we thought we would uh, discuss what's what's coming, what's happened and, and um, what we think of the roadmap. So Guy, you've got some dates in front of us. First, let's take a look at those. Sure, right. So you've already mentioned the, the early day that we've already passed now and are in a little bit of more freedom. Uh, then the next date to come up is the 26th of April, uh, where you're going to start seeing people allowed indoors and outdoors, both at restaurants and pubs, although they must still shut by six o'clock. You're also allowed to more fully reopen your close contact services, so nail, nail, hair, etc. Uh, then from 17th of May, uh, we're going to see hospitality venues allowed to be opened until much later, towards 10.30. Other less important hospitality venues or, or, or less regularly used, shall we say, than important, such as cinemas and amusement arcades are allowed to reopen. And then finally heading into June, uh, we're going to see, uh, again, a further relaxing of uh, nighttime restrictions uh, more people allowed in buildings and finally on the 21st of june will pretty much be fully reopened great okay so obviously um I, I mentioned before one of the mps one of my local mps uh, i'll mention another so mark harper um, is a conservative mp and has also led the parliamentary group on um i, I don't, don't remember what they're called but effectively the uh, let's open up everything now group um so uh you know, there's, there's obviously we've had a couple of lockdowns before. People informally refer to this one as lockdown three. Um, Guy, I know that you know, having spoken to you before, you think we could be going quicker. Do you want to, do you want to sort of give us your opinion? So I'm more inclined to that view, but in all, in all honesty, I'm, I'm not particularly strongly minded on any particular one. It, it, it essentially comes down to the fact that. Looking out my window in London and when I've been out and about, uh, it's it's just not really... The way it's looked to me is that as soon as we had a relaxation come through, even a small one, and we were already biting at the bit by that point, all the supposed rules which are still in place have, as far as the population at large are concerned, 
have by and large been left by the wayside. You see people crammed into the parks on the weekend uh, in much larger groups than uh, than six. Uh, again, meeting for, for dinners, uh, both either either inside or just outside and in, in their wells around inside their house. So sort of, sort of in keeping with the rules, but not quite. So uh, essentially, we're already seeing uh, mass contact between people in, in, in close circumstances. And so if we're still maintaining the, the base rules which affect businesses as opposed to people actually coming into contact, then I, I, I just don't see that we are particularly significantly saving lives compared with the remaining business damage that we'll still do. And so I don't see it as as valuable as it might otherwise be to continue doing that. And I think we might yeah, as well, well face facts and, and let business do business. It's it's really interesting because I a lot of my background. So b- b- before I started messing about with um, with with energy, I've I've been in booze pretty much my whole <laughs> my whole career. I come at this from a, a pro hospitality standpoint. Yeah. So um, whether it's been running pubs, which I've done in the past on a couple of occasions, whether it's been working in. Uh, drinks wholesale and I, I so I naturally have a lot of uh, friends contacts whatever in in the industry and I can understand the complaint you know why should a nail salon for example be opening before I can uh, bef- before I can open my, the indoor part of my bar you know 40% of um, uh, hospitality venues remain closed at the moment at least even if that that you know Everyone who's legally allowed to reopen, mm. I think it's only about forty percent that have outdoor yep. space it's significant enough for for them to do trade. Uh, it has to be profitable as well, so it's not just whether well, they're absolutely. allowed to. A significant, a significant proportion of places that can be open will remain closed mm. because they have two or three tables, mm. and and that's that's not worth turning the lights on for. So I do understand that, but at the same time, I think my perspective is that there are always going to be um, with sort of sweeping and general rules. There will always be people who fall foul of them in terms of what seems fair and common sense, really hard to um, impart common sense into sweeping and general rules Mm. because there will be individual circumstances whereby say, for example, um, in a town centre where you have a much lower R rate, you have a much lower case rate, but you're effectively governed by the same rules as a different part of the country. Now, we've tried um, regional rules and from the outside looking in, it looked absolutely ridiculous, <laughs> frankly, um, because because you would have someone who lives in one place, works in another region in, in terms of their... Uh, in terms of their tier system. And I, I think that we as a country really can't afford another lockdown. We can't afford another one. So uh, I think that's why I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in a, a my, my perspective is that it's not perfect, this um, roadmap out of lockdown. But so far, the numbers have been good, um, or, or at least not as bad as they could have been, not as bad as they have been coming out of the two previous lockdowns. We've got the vaccine. I think it's arguably a case of government keep supporting those businesses that need it, but ultimately let's let's try and stay as healthy as possible. What do you think, Deepak? Um, I think it's a mixture of things. Really, it's a it's a fun, it's a mixture of it's a mixture of things. Really, it's a funny one because um, when he made these announcements, because the thing with Boris, he just loves over promising, doesn't he? 
Um, that's good news, Boris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good news, Boris. He he's, he's got this massive um, obsession with Ego. being loved. Yeah, that as well. He just he loves being loved, and he wants to have, you know, he loves sort of being appreciated and having a lot of love and sort of oh that's fun time Boris sort of thing. He's a great guy, and he's gonna pull us out of um, the situation we're in. And I think it was a bit of a weird one because I think some of the things that for me it was weird. So for example that libraries and museums wouldn't be opening at the same time and you probably think they should. Um, meeting people in outdoor spaces probably could have happened earlier, I think. I don't know, probably could have done that earlier. Um, but some things are just a bit, are a little bit random. I mean, he, he keeps talking about how schools are safe, whereas his own, um, his actual own adv- advisors and SAGE themselves haven't said at any stage that schools are necessarily safe. Um there are still some threats there. I don't think schools have been given the necessary support or funding to add ventilation or to split the classes or have, you know, have cabins where they can divide classes into or have enough space between pupils and things like that. So I don't think that's necessarily been done yet. Although I know testing has come in, which is good. Um, and I think some people have short memories as well. I don't know if you remember last April. He, he was saying I've got a lot some of the lines he used last April because I've got it written down so Super Saturday uh, and then last 4th of July Independence Day everyone will have a normal family Christmas sort of days before he cancelled it and all that sort of stuff um, he's got a history of over promising on things like this um, and the other thing which we need to be careful of is I know vaccines are fantastic and I've, and I've mentioned this before but the vaccines alone are not enough like the vaccines on their own will not help us get out of lockdown. So you need to reduce the community transmission. You need to keep an eye on the new variants because we could be in situations where we have new variants that the vaccine wouldn't be able to guard us against, particularly the dangerous new one we've heard coming from India as well, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. Um, so... You know, test and trace, I don't know how well it's working at the moment. Test and trace is supposed to stop um, sort of lockdowns from happening around sort of on our third one. Um, so, yeah, there's questions about the effectiveness of that. Um, but, yeah, so um, I think I think we can potentially work to the dates that he's provided. But a lot of things need to change in that time for it to work. I think, I think you both raise really good points. And I do largely agree with both of you in principle. It's just my hey. <laughs> principal agreement. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Carry on, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Stop there. We're, we're done. You know, well, well, yeah, problem yeah, solved. Yeah. Um, to do. Yeah. <laughs> my one question though is, is, is in practice, do you either well, do you not think that there are already that many people coming into contact with each other, and therefore the same sort of issue of spreading disease is already happening, or do you think there would be? far far more than is already the case would come into contact with each other if the rules were ended sooner or more quickly yeah yeah i mean i i I absolutely think that and i think just to go back to the examples you raised about um uh perhaps the the rules being either not observed or bent in in central london as as you've sort of said in in terms of what what you've seen over the last few weeks um for, for me it's it to, to look too closely at those examples is to perhaps oversimplify what the mm. issue is. So, Guy, just looking back at the sort of argument you made at the start regarding the 
um, sort of not following of the rules, perhaps, or, or the bending of the rules in, in, in London. I don't necessarily see that as evidence that um, what's happening now doesn't work. I think whenever rules or regulations or guidelines are imposed, you expect people, a small number of people, not to follow. Um, I think that also if, say, for example, 5% of the population has never taken the rules seriously and has never made any effort to follow them, um, which which is possibly realistic. I mean, it's it's a number that's plucked from nowhere. But um, say, say that's the case, I would not necessarily uh, use that as an example to say, OK, well, on, on that basis, everything else is futile. Let's just open it up. And I think I'm not saying you're making that point, but I think that the example of people not following the rules or, or, or perhaps putting themselves in harm's way because the rules aren't clear enough is not does not sort of totally negate all of the other good stuff that is happening, which is, you know, people keeping distance and 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 not meeting up in close places. Well, I certainly agree in principle that an exception doesn't disprove the rule. The problem is that, at least in London, and I am extrapolating purely from London, so I, I might be wrong for the rest of the country, and I, I don't know, this is what I'm just extrapolating from what, I, what I'm seeing, um, is, is that it, it's, it's more than just some minor exceptions. It's, it's a mass population shift mm. in behaviour, and the various parts of the streets, the parks, are largely packed on regular mm. occasions. So you're getting a large proportion of the city in regular contact with each other. Uh, and therefore, as far as any rule shifts, for at least in regards to London, as far as rule shifts go, I can't see it massively affecting how often these people come into contact with people who aren't in their households. But then um, I guess ultimately what's happening there is people are taking it upon themselves to put make it more risky for everyone. That's what's happening now. If the rules were to change, i.e. Um, we were all, all of a sudden all allowed to pack into the pub, for example, a load of people who previously have been observing the rules will then be out mixing. So it doesn't, it's, it's not the same people who will then go, OK, well, I haven't taken the rules seriously, but now I'm going to take the rules seriously in the pub. So those people who aren't necessarily going to prioritise following the rules, are still going to not prioritise following the rules, but the rules will be slackened. But there will be a load of people who are following the rules then mixing. Oh, that's quite right. The, the numbers of that disparity are going to be fairly small. And so therefore, we then measure that up against the effect on business. Uh, and then we get into the, the, the you know, national wealth versus national health divide. Mm. Um, and essentially, well, if, if there is such a, a, a small disparity between that, those numbers of people... Uh, whereas the damage to business is still quite great, uh, then might, we might need to start considering, well, in practice, it might be better to start promoting business earlier on. Mm. So I know that um, we're, we're all in general agreement then. We've got approximately, for you know, so give or take, we've got approximately eight weeks before um, <laughs> new Independence Day, <laughs> um, which, you know, or the new Super Saturday or whatever. Well, we never got our on. own Independence Day, so we need to keep coming up with, with them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Everyone else gets Independence Days from us, so we might as well have our own. Yeah, <laughs> that's another conversation for another day. Well, perhaps we can have those ridiculous big Ben Brexit bongs and this January is a, a first anniversary of the great the, the great unleashing of this country. Um, but I think that we've got eight weeks to play with now. 
And um, so I don't think any of us are really advocating for now being within these eight weeks adjusting the plan. I think I think ultimately we're more or less happy to stick with it. Yeah. So, Guy, are, are you suggesting that perhaps you might have had a question or two about the plan as and when it was? Yeah, it's almost too late out, now. But this is now now it's yeah. now it's a little late. This is purely so, hypothetical. So I think Deepak, your concern, and I think something that you've um, you know, we, we've spoken before and, and you're sort of very um, sort of clued up on it is, uh, is about, um, so it, it, it's about managing correctly uh, the community transmission. Uh, and because effectively when we talk about scary variants, uh, they all come as a result uh, of community transmission. So every time a, um, a virus jumps from one host to another, uh, um, there is a, p- a potential for um, sort of, what's the word, mutation uh, within the virus. So um, how, how do you think we are being in terms of borders, in terms of, in terms of that side of legislation? Because obviously we, mm. we've spoken before a little mm. bit about the Indian variant. Pakistan and Bangladesh have just been placed on a red list, but um, India not. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few things. I want. I'll start with the local community transmission first, then I'll move on to the borders. The first yeah. example I was going to use was something... I don't know if you guys saw it in the news a couple of weeks ago, discussions about long COVID mm. and younger people. It's very now, my concern, the example I'm going to use is a, is a straightforward one that I know will affect a few people, is let's just use the example of nightclubs. If you think of an, an average packed nightclub and how many young people you'll have squeezed into one place. Um, those are I'd rather not like to think about that. Is that <laughs> yeah, like sardines. But no, I'm, I'm coming on to an important That's point. guys' natural <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say. Uh, but no, the, the reason I'm mentioning this is because the government themselves have, are estimating that young people will not get the first dose until July. And that's weeks, that's weeks after mm. nightclubs will yeah. open, bars will open. That's weeks after. And that's based on their own estimates, point. okay? Now, that could easily create a surge. I mean, it probably will create a surge in younger people. And that sort of surge to that extent can potentially risk new mutations. Yeah. And as a double whammy, um, could dramatically increase the prevalence of long COVID alongside that because it's um, been happening among, amongst a large number of young people. That, so that And that could... De- sort of debilitate young people without even them needing hospital treatment so yeah, we may not problem. fully get the information on that from the fact that um it's often dealt with at home the consequence of long covid um so that could not only happen create a new mutation and bring about long covid but it could also not be tracked properly um simply because it's something which happens when a lot of patients return back home now, in terms of the variants, um, the Indian variant that we discussed, this goes back to a point I mentioned before, is whether or not we're actually learning our lessons from what's happened before. And there's lesson, the lesson number one I want to refer to is have we really learned our lesson from what happened with the South African variant? And based on what's happening with the Indian variant at the moment, and we'll talk about sort of um, red listing countries and everything now, um, the last I read up on it, and this is before this is before we had the Indian variant, we actually had eight variants of interest or concern a couple of weeks ago, and now we've got the Indian one. So I guess that takes it up to nine, unless I've missed any. Um, now, it's mystifying that India has not been red listed. At the moment, India is going through a huge crisis. They're having around 200,000 cases a day. We've seen nothing like it, Okay. 
um, some of the pictures and scenes I've seen from there were atrocious. Um, sort of like the, the wheeling of bodies around and um, sort of on the spot cremations and things like that. Okay, um, so it's a very serious situation. And now this goes back to two lessons which I don't think we've learned from the past. Now, the South African variant, which we had um, a few months ago, the research we have now about the South African variant, it says it was brought into the country several times, several times before travellers from some African countries were told they had to quarantine. So it came here a lot before quarantine was required. And the latest PHE figures show there have been 56 more cases of the South African variant detected in the UK. Okay, the total now is around 700 or 800 cases that came about because of the South African variant. Now, what we're showing now is we're not learning from that because because of our slowness to turn that from a variant of interest to a variant of variant of concern. It brought a lot of cases about in this country from the South African variant, which obviously the more mutations we have, the harder it is for the vaccine to deal with. Okay, now, as we know, Boris is heading to India at the end of this month. Surrounding countries that have much less prevalence and much less cases than India, like Pakistan and Bangladesh, have been red listed. I think last week I saw some scenes from the airports there, people rushing back. Um, India is still not red listed. Now, maybe I'm being, I don't know, maybe I'm just looking into something that isn't there. But the reality is the facts are Boris has a trip to India at the end of this month and he's desperate to seek a trade deal with them before the EU get in there. Um, and it seems to me he's putting that ahead of the uh, the public health of the country. And for me, that's highly disturbing. And that links to the second lesson I'm going to mention is that this is not the first time that this government have shown they've been willing to put, um, I guess, the, the line that The Guardian used last year was put Brexit over breathing because they actually did something very similar with Brexit the e for breathing. Yeah. And they did something very similar last year. I don't know if you remember this, but with the EU procurement of ventilators i don't know mm -hmm. if you guys remember the sort of lines that the government were using for why they weren't involved and how they went back and forth okay so we had a, the pm's official spokesperson said we're not cooperating with the eu because we're not in the eu okay six hours later they were saying we're not cooperating with them because we didn't get the email to join whereas the week before that matt hancock was on question time um saying we are engaged and we're actually taking part in the discussions Hmm. Eventually, we found out that they were involved in four meetings about bulk buying ventilators um, and were invited to be involved. But they changed their pitch on it simply to appease their voters and um, keep the fans on board for the sake of well, Brexit. I, I suppose I'd have, I'd have two queries. Just in relating to India, hmm. is perhaps is perhaps a potential reason why we're not treating it as, although the numbers are stark, we're not treating it as a cause for national concern at present largely to due to the fact that india has such an enormous population and therefore you're going to get far far larger numbers of people having covid just simply by dint of the size of the population uh, the second question i would have uh, is uh, yeah the, the the vacillating on on the ventilators is is hilariously embarrassing um but was that part of the general package the general eu health package as a response to covid which included then subsequent vaccine uh, cooperation, or was that a standalone issue? It was standalone. It was a separate right. invitation. It was a separate right. invitation to take part. Um, and they, my, my, my worry with that is we went back and forth on it with different messages to the public about why we weren't involved. And then I was thinking, this is a pretty serious situation. I mean, we were 
promised by, I think, um, Dyson, our favourite Singaporean vacuum uh, provider, um, saying he will provide ventilators. He didn't provide a single one. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that that was just silly. And, and I think the reason I'm mentioning it is because it's just lessons that we had last year that are repeating again. And my thing last year with that whole ventilator thing was why would you place that above public health? And now I'm getting the same thing again with not red listing India. There are no scientific reasons why you would not red list India now, even if it's a variant, um, if it's not a variant of concern yet, but it's worth investigating, you would always take the safest option, surely. And the safest option would be you would want to quarantine people coming in, especially when this country, there are countries around India that have mm. nowhere near the prevalence or the cases that are red listed. Well, as a proportion, that's the... That's no, just red listed, full stop. The countries are just red listed or not. But, uh, but as that, a, yeah, as a proportion, yeah, as a proportion, as a proportion of their right. Country. That is interesting. Well, you see, I wonder as, as regards India and, and the, the contrast you're drawing is essentially, you know, whatever, whether or not the government should indeed red list India as far as the health is concerned. Um, but you draw an interesting distinction between how well people are in the UK as far as their health and anti-COVID stuff is concerned versus um, the future wealth to be brought in by a beneficial trading agreement with India. So would you say that categorically that in no instance should the general health of the nation be traded in any way for the wealth of the nation i think it depends i think when it's the situation i mean we've already seen cases in london uh where this variant exists already and 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 not only that it's the it's the evidence that it's actual evidence that it it, it's such a it's actually a they call it a double mutation which is something we haven't seen before Um, and so while they're investigating this particular variant it's already showing signs of the sort of immediate danger it can present. Now, they've, we've already detected 73 cases of this um, in England, and there's been four cases in Scotland as well already, and that's what placed it under a, a variant under investigation. And it, the, the last I read on it, uh, it said it has properties that make it more evasive to the current vaccine. So they already know that. They already know it's more evasive to the current vaccine, and it's more transmiss- transmissible. Now, the combination of those two things could bring could allow this to bring on a third wave just by the just by the fact of the combination of those two things, um, which would so, either drive us into a further lockdown. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I think it. De- I would say it depends on the situation. The situation okay. we're in now with the fact that this is a double mutation and we know that and we know we have cases, which means you should just prioritise public health for now and just cancel that trip and just deal with the situation, red list the country now, shut it off and deal with it now because we have to learn from the, from the South African example. Um, that's, that's my current biggest concern. I think it would it would um, set a really, really good example for the British public and, the, and British business to say, we are still holding this, but we are going to do it electronically we have still set aside days of meetings talks discussions we're still going to have this but what we're going to do is we're going to stay in the uk and we're going to have it here mm. i understand um post brexit a lot more pressure is on us to get trade deals mm. now because because our, our largest and most um conveniently located trading partner um we, we don't have the great terms we did before 
So we need new trade deals. Um, we, we all disagree on, on, on Brexit to a degree, um, but we, we, we recognise that that's done. We need a trade deal. And, and India is the second largest country in the world by population. So obviously it's a huge priority for government for life after yeah. COVID. But Deepak, I think you're right. I think um, also if this were at the start of the pandemic, yeah. you would forgive going and say and then afterwards saying well, that yeah. was a really bad call yeah. but now we, we're exactly so we should have end. learned our lessons by now we're so close to the end these talks need to happen they need to happen on zoom yeah. or teams well i, I don't <laughs> think it's, it's just that boris john I'm, I'm sure you're probably not saying that but i don't think it's just that boris johnson is physically going to india is that it would be um the indians would be unlikely to trade favorably with us if we then shut our yeah. borders off yeah. to them fully yeah well i think um it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? And I think that's the thing with um, a lot. It came out a lot in the uh, the Brexit talks about optics domestically. So you you had to think that a lot of the European side was mm. um, uh, there. There was a little bit of um, what's the word showmanship mm. on both sides trying to uh, trying to achieve what they need to achieve. Yeah, I think um, I think Guy was asking before. I just I just got the figures because you were asking about whether it was a proportion or if it was yeah. just a raw number. So the one I've got here is from April the thirteenth. Um, so for example, for Pakistan and Bangladesh, that are both red listed countries, mm-hmm. Pakistan has um, twenty daily confirmed cases per million of the population. So it's twenty per million. Bangladesh has forty, and India had one hundred and twenty. um so um yeah that's that's um that's the difference between and those two countries are red listed Um, and bangladesh is actually even more uh densely populated correct yeah than india India. so it's not just a density of population thing that's very interesting there's no disputing that that the countries are not being judged on a level playing field in terms of the coronavirus so um well i mean i think Interesting. So we started talking about a, a, a domestic UK um, uh, sort of COVID response over the next few weeks. We agreed on that. So we decided to find something we wanted to to, to have a bit of an argy-bargy about. But I was just going to add, I don't, I don't know if you remember this time last year, um, you might remember this, Oxford University released a government response tracker. I don't know if you remember it. It was, ter- oh, well, it was not terrible in terms of what they did, <laughs> but in terms of where we ended up on there. But they're... Um, yeah, the Blavatnik School of Government released a government response tracker and it ra- ranked 168 countries in terms of their readiness to leave lockdown. So I'll be interested to know if they've done that this time around or if they're going to do yeah. it. Because when they did it last, um, out of the 168 countries, we were ranked like 160th or something <laughs> in terms oh, of yeah. whether or not we were ready. Um, and that was like last May or April or May. Um, oh, and they put us, it was, I think it might have been even lower than 160. I think it might have been 163rd or something. But it, I think it was around 160 out of 168 countries. So, um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be interested to see if they do that again, see where we are. Well, to, to quote the, um, the, the great Michael Gove, uh, I think we've had quite a lot of that <laughs> <laughs> Great. So at the end of every week, we do a final feature, which is called the final thought. Uh, Deepak, why don't you start us? You're usually a, um, what's the word? You, you usually do an on this day for us. What's what's happened on this day, Deepak? I couldn't find anything interesting on this day, sadly. I looked oh, everywhere. Wow. I looked absolutely <laughs> yeah. everywhere. I was a Britannica. I was all sorts of websites. I was 
I had VPNs trying to find cool websites. I did everything. Um, so I you did every single thing. I tried. <laughs> I tried everything, and it didn't quite work. Well, I suppose um, the most important on this day, for this day, will will then henceforth be the funeral. Yeah. Yes, correct. I suppose so. Um, yeah, the the, um, the the funeral of HRH, mm. the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So, um, guy, I, I think. We, we don't normally talk about what or what our final thoughts going to be, but I think this might be related. What's your final thought, Guy? Um, well, uh, since it's the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh today, and since he, he requested um, for those in peril on the sea as his uh, hymn during the funeral, uh, it reminded me actually of my home country, uh, Bermuda, which where one of the main schools, my father's old school's uh, anthem, is for those in peril on the sea as well. And it reminded me then of how Bermuda was settled. Essentially, it was a shipwreck uh, in about, oh, I think it was 1609, but I might be getting a bit off by a couple of years. Um, And the sailors were shipwrecked onto Bermuda and then found this mysterious rock with these Spanish names carved into them where there'd been a, a Spanish shipwreck years before. And this really fascinated them. And so... Uh, when the story got back of this new settlement in Bermuda around this mysterious rock, uh, it so inspired William Shakespeare that he then wrote The Tempest. Oh, wow. Oh, brilliant. Wow. That's a great fact. I love The Tempest as well. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favourite Shakespeare plays. I used to love it because one of my favourite footballers growing up was called um, Rio Ferdinand, and uh, there's a character called Ferdinand. In <laughs> Indeed. <the> Tempest, <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Coming at it from all cultural <laughs> starting points. Right, and and my final thought is is one of sadness, happiness, and hope. Um, Guy has a life outside of of, <laughs> of um, political commentary, uh, so he is going to be leaving us for only hopefully a few short weeks. Uh, he's he's taking some exams to prove how brainy he is. <laughs> so in the meantime, we thought um, we'll stop doing this format until we've got him back because we always value his input. Um, but what we are going to do is Deepak and I will meet midweek and we'll do the little bit of chat, a little bit of fun. And um, yeah, we hope you'll join us for that. But thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this week. And um, yeah, we'll hopefully see you soon. Thanks. See you soon. Ta-ta. again for listening to us if you'd like to get in touch then please do uh, you can find me on twitter at at hectic kidwell and you can fire in any questions you'd like us to answer or leave us any feedback thanks very much bye